Hi, you're listening to iiPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Bortz, curator of fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, education programs manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Matt. Hi, Megan. Today, we're talking with a lecturer in evolutionary anthropology here at Duke University. My name is Elaine Gervada, and I'm a lemurologist. So that means that most of my research is studying lemurs, but I also teach various classes about primate and human evolution. Elaine's road to being a lemurologist began in Washington State, where she grew up. I was really interested in animals and science from a young age, for sure. I've always been a big animal lover. We had tons of pets growing up. I had newts, cats, dogs, turtles, tons of rats. I love rats. Um, And I was really into Jurassic Park. So I was just at the right age when that came out, that it was like a really big deal for me. I had the posters and like all the different species and that they were extinct and that there was this world that was so different in the past, really captivated my imagination. So I was really interested from early on in this idea that Earth had this ancient history and that it had changed. Elaine didn't get much exposure to the topics surrounding evolution in school until... Um, I had a really wonderful, wonderful science teacher in middle school. We learned a lot of really awesome earth science and geology, lots of volcanoes and earthquakes and stuff like that, and growing up in the Pacific Rim. So that was really interesting stuff. But after that, I didn't really have good or encouraging science teachers. And I also had really negative experiences in math. So Elaine headed off to the University of California at Santa Cruz with broad interests and not much of a focus on science. In my intro to human evolution course, I didn't know that human evolution was a thing that people studied. And when I realized that, I thought, cool. (laughs) That's what I'm going to major in. And then I also, you know, took primatology classes and learned a lot more about primate diversity. So you fell in love with fossilized relatives of humans in the first class that you took, but then you found a different primate that that really hooked you, right? Because of course I'd seen primates in zoos, but I'd never seen lemurs because way back in these times, lemurs were a lot less well-known than they are today. So I remember going to the San Francisco Zoo and seeing ring-tailed lemurs for the first time. And I was blown away by how amazing they were, how incredibly cute and acrobatic and charming and just fascinating to watch they were. Um, So I kind of fell in love with lemurs then. But But despite that experience, Elaine's journey didn't take her straight from her human evolution class, which she now teaches at Duke, by the way, all the way into lemur research and academia. First, she moved to New York City, got married, and worked jobs like barista and nanny. Another nanny, who was watching some other kids who wanted to go to a museum, knew Elaine. And while that nanny was at the American Museum of Natural History, she met a guy named Will Harcourt Smith a well-regarded paleoanthropologist at the museum. The other nanny remembered that Elaine was really interested in fossils and asked if she'd like to meet Dr. Harcourt Smith. After they met, Elaine began volunteering at the museum and then getting ultimately hired into entomology. So I worked in bugs for a while, um, doing basically pretty menial, just collections and databasing work. Once I was in that environment, I was sort of in this really stimulating intellectual environment because they had just started the graduate program at the museum 
right around that time. And they had a seminar series where they would bring in a guest speaker every single Monday and they would really bring people from all over the world. So it was an amazing experience. And during that time, my supervisor said, you know, you should really just do a master's degree in the evening at Hunter College across Central Park. So I would work at the museum in the day. I would walk across Central Park and then go to class. So I met my master's advisor at Hunter, Mike Stiper. Dr. Stiper, a biological anthropologist, encouraged Elaine and put her to work on a data project, learning more about scripting and computational skills. Elaine found she liked academia. I mean, everyone around you is very curious and engaged for the most part. In 2013, Elaine went on to Yale. And I was fortunate enough that one of the faculty members was Dame Allison Richard. Dame Allison Richard, an anthropologist, is widely known for her work on the evolution of complex social systems among primates, including Shafak. She began working in Madagascar in 1970, where she worked with Allison Jolly. Kind of the queen of lemurology. Jolly, who we talked about in season two with Hanta Rasamimanan, worked nearly 50 years as a primatologist, mostly in Madagascar. She laid the groundwork for her students like Allison Richard, who passed on their passion for the island nation and for lemurs to another generation of students like Elaine. So Allison Richard had established about 30 years earlier a field site in the southwest of Madagascar called Beza Mahafali Special Reserve. A partnership for conservation, research and training. The reserve is about 1,400 acres of arid forest in southwest Madagascar. So I was able to work there. I went there in my first year of graduate school and got to study the Shafak lemur population there. We would be remiss if we didn't let you all know that you too can learn from Allison Richard thanks to her recent and excellent book, The Sloth Lemur's Song, Madagascar from the Deep Past to the Uncertain Present. Elaine's experience as a student taught her about the environments where lemurs like Shafak thrive. Shafaks, basically, their distribution is in a ring around the island of Madagascar. Um, so the species I studied is the southernmost. And then the species at the Duke Lemur Center is also a species of western Shafak. And so they are further north in the dry deciduous forest. And then in the southwest, it's even drier. So that's really more like a semi desert-like environment called the spiny forest. It was in this spiny forest that Elaine began to work on her research at the reserve. The reserve was established through collaborations with many of the surrounding villages through an agreement about where researchers would be. Um, and then it's co-managed by Madagascar National Parks, but it's not a national park. It's a community reserve. There's a lot of people who are still living a fairly subsistence lifestyle. So small, what are called communes in Madagascar, where people practice cultivation. They have livestock. They're what we would maybe call small holders. So it's not huge industrialized agriculture so much like we have here, but family and community farms and lands and herds. And people still you know, use forest trees for firewood and cook over fires a lot. So the forest is really the source of people's livelihood. The plan was for Elaine to collect DNA. This would help researchers understand more about the diversity that was in the reserve. A snip or notch would be taken from the ear, and then those skin cells would provide information for Elaine's dissertation. And this kind of snip, this tiny little little, little chunk that's <laughs> taken out of the ear, was a very common way to get DNA from an animal. For my dissertation, I really wanted to work on the Shafak genome. So to make a long story short, 
I didn't have good luck at that point with getting data or getting DNA that was suitable for whole genome sequencing. It might be a different story today. For a combination of reasons, the sensitivity of the skin cells from the notches, the lack of lab facilities at the reserve in Beza, the technology of the time, Elaine did not have the genetic information that she needed. So we screened so many samples and we were originally going to do a bunch of genomes from Beza. And we had one sample from one individual, number 214, named Dimby, who was born in the 90s and just happened to have enough DNA in his ear notch that we were able to sequence his genome. And and then through a stroke of luck, I got connected with Jeff Rogers at Baylor Human Genome Sequencing Center, and he was part of this effort to sequence a bunch of non-human primate genomes. And ultimately, he ended up generating data for six cockerel shafak from the lemur center, one vero shafak that had previously been at the lemur center because of the lemur center, they used to have more species, and two diadem shafak and two tattersall shafak. They're like, why don't you just have this data? Which was pretty amazing. I ended up analyzing the genomes of not just the Beza Shafak, but these four different species of Shafak um, that represent, you know, Eastern, Northern, and Western Shafaks. And what really stood out when you look across the genome is accelerated evolution in a number of genes and coding proteins involved in various pathways related to, it seems like, a plant-based diet, right? So we found, for example, a few proteins involved in intestinal billy morphology, which is something that can enhance nutrient absorption. So shafaks have super, super long gastrointestinal tracts and really long gut passage times. And so that kind of goes along with this strategy for having a plant-based diet based on maximizing nutrient extraction. We also saw accelerated evolution in two, I'll talk about two other really interesting pathways. So one is in metabolism, xenobiotic metabolism, basically breaking down compounds from outside. These are chemicals that plants put into their leaves to deter predators. And so shafaks seem like they have evolved really good capacity to actually metabolize these compounds. And it is considered a classic case of plant herbivore arm races. In evolutionary biology, an evolutionary arms race is when species are adapting to each other, and then they're adapting to those adaptations, and it spins on and on. So an example of this might be a cheetah adapting to run a little bit faster to get after its prey on longer legs. Then its prey, like an impala, might adapt to run a little faster than the cheetah, and so the cheetah gets a little faster, and the impala gets a little faster, and they go on and on, and that is an evolutionary arms race. Ultimately, neither species gains a huge advantage. They're just responding kind of step for step. And we don't usually think about this, but herbivores are plant predators. And so there's this exchange, this competition that's constantly going on between herbivores and the plants that don't want to get eaten. So the plants will use a lot of strategies to fight off predators that are coming to munch them up. So things like thorns and gross-tasting chemicals and even poison that might be in the plant itself as a way to kind of repel those plant predators that are coming to take a chunk. And that standoff goes on and on and on as the plant eaters start to find ways around those defenses, plants adapt to respond, and so on. And then we also see a lot of change in the genes that encode bitter taste receptors. 
So bitter taste is thought to be a signal of something we don't want to eat. Um, but Shafox, you know, presumably they have like a pretty high bitter tolerance. So it's really easy to imagine that the capacity to effectively neutralize these toxins would co-evolve with less sensitivity. These findings were exciting, but there had to be a better way to extract DNA. And with rapid changes in DNA screening, amplification, and sequencing, it was possible to use more, let's say, readily available material. When I switched to poop, it was so much better. And herbivore poop is where it's at for DNA. Ah, yes, the benefits of herbivore poop, especially the leaf-eating folivore poop, right? The physical structure and the abundance of all of the samples they provide makes it pretty easy to sample a whole population, right? I think because their feces has this kind of waxy seal and it comes out pretty hard so it's like does a good job of sloughing off those colon lining cells it's just really good for getting intact dna and we were able to get you know really good dna for for amplification and other purposes from the pellets and also the other thing is shafox just poop constantly so compared to other species they're easy to find um all you need is one pellet to get a good amount of dna but usually every time they go it's at least 12 you've got a good sample size there and in the wild it's not a lot of like waiting around you can get a lot of samples if you can find animals you will have fecal samples that day and Ashafak lets you know when you'll have something to collect. They have this super specific poop posture that they do that is like so recognizable mm-hmm. from a long distance where like they were just hanging out in their usual posture with their hands, you know, below their feet kind of hanging out on the tree. And then their tail moves up. Their whole posture kind of shifts a little. And it's very obvious from a long distance away, like that animal's about to poop. <laughs> yeah, I think the biggest challenge is because the poop is kind of hard, it tends to bounce a lot. And then they also like to go in like a chain reaction where one will go and then everyone starts going in the group and they'll be up in the tree and then their pellet, every, it's just pellets bouncing everywhere and like knowing whose is whose. Some of the questions to consider with DNA are pretty straightforward. When it comes to bitter taste receptors, single exon gene, pretty simple. We know its structure more or less. And if it fits in right, it triggers like neurons to the gustatory cortex of your brain and you have a sensation of taste, right? So we understand that system really well. And the same is kind of true for smell to a degree. It's true for color vision, for example. So sensory genetics is really fertile ground. (laughs) The promise of DNA research and what it can help us discover has been a real journey. When Jurassic Park came out, there's this sense of like, we're we're sequencing all the animals. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, now we have these data. And like, we know all the stuff about the animals. And so if I'm interested in the biology of lemurs or the genetics of lemurs like like what is there more to do <laughs> and then, oh like... <laughs> so much more to do there is so much more to do we're just scratching the surface the human genome was sequenced about 20 years ago and at the time people really thought that we would solve every disease and know the basis of every trait people really had extremely high expectations it just turns out that the genome is a lot more complex than we thought And we still don't know the genetic basis of most traits. And the genetic basis for the traits that we do have some idea is way more complex than we ever thought, right? So that's something I really emphasize in my classes. And if that's true for the human genome, we'll just imagine what it is like for a creature that's not, you know, super well studied under laboratory conditions. So where is your research going now? So I have two main things. We've done a bit to follow up on this, which is just looking at 
other fulivore lemurs to see if they show some of the same genetic changes. And preliminarily, it seems like bamboo lemurs maybe do a bit, but lepi lemur not so much. So I think that's another thing I'm interested in. I know Lydia Green, who you spoke to, is also interested in a fulivore is not a fulivore is not a fulivore, right? So there's a lot of different ways to be a fulivore that's kind of based on the what I would think of as like boundary conditions of, you know, which niches are filled, right? Niche differentiation, um, body size, phylogeny, et cetera. But another one of my really big interests is aging. I actually got interested in Shafak genomics originally because they're really, really long-lived in the wild. At Beza, they regularly live into their their early 30s, the same as at Ronomophon. And so they are technically considered the longest-lived primate for body size in the wild, for which there is data. We love a specific superlative around here. Okay, so as I think about this, these are relatively large animals that are living on shrinking habitats. And it seems like there's a real risk of a genetic bottleneck in Shafak populations. That is, like you're really reducing the amount of diversity in the population. And that, that diversity, that's really important for an animal and a species to thrive and diversify into the future. So do you see any evidence that Shafak are actually losing any genetic diversity in living populations? They have really high genetic diversity, which is kind of surprising because they're endangered or critically endangered, depending on the species. I think actually most of them are now. So their populations are in decline, but they still harbor a lot of genetic diversity, which could be kind of a reflection of being being pretty successful. And that also goes along with having a relatively large body and being able to cover longer distances. It doesn't mean that all folivores are going to do great across harsh environments, right? So I think it really depends on the kind of folivore you are, but Shafox seem to have a pretty good strategy where they're not obligate folivores. They eat a lot of fruit too, especially in the Eastern rainforest. They can eat a diet that throughout most of the year is dominated by fruit. Pretty much whenever fruit is available, they'll eat it. But they have an ability to eat leaves when they need to. So we think about fallback foods as potentially being an even stronger pressure than the animal's preferred diet. So they have an extreme flexibility. I do want to point out that the fruit they're eating is not, you know, like a peach from the store. That's probably not going to be good for a shafak. They're not super high density, high sugar fruits. They're small fruits that are high fiber and and everything like that, but they're technically fruit. (laughs) So they're not strict leaf eaters so much as as some other taxa. Well, clearly you've had a fascination with Shafak in your research, but would you say that they're your favorite lemur? You've seen Shafaks, so you know. They are the most amazing creatures. Is it fair to say they're your favorite lemur? uh, I think it's fair (laughs) to say. I mean, I do love all lemurs and I I really love lepi lemurs, our sportive lemurs. Um, But Shafox, the combination of how they're somehow so elegant and graceful and gentle, angels of the forest is how I think about them. But at the same time, so cute and goofy. They're just incredible animals. Serious agree. Just just incredible. And after learning about your work, I agree even more that Shafak are really incredible. Thank you so much for being part of iiPod, Elaine. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. 
A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you, and goodbye for now. From Matt. And Megan. And all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center. Thank you.